So we are starting off on part one of hopefully a four-part series on making the case for Trump. Now, this series uh, was really the idea of Robert here. Um, Robert Hello. is... Robert, I am very um, thrilled that you wanted to do this podcast. My name is Michael. Um, I am in Florida. I am a Republican now, but I haven't always been a Republican. I started out as a Republican, then, then I saw Mexico and what deregulation did, so I became a Democrat, and then I felt kind of betrayed. And so I'm a Republican again for now. Not that I like, you know, being part of either party, but either way, that's where I come that's my background. That's where I come from. So, Robert, a little bit about you. So I'm, I'm a retiree, and I live in uh, New York, uh, upstate uh, New York City. I'm a Democrat. I've been a lifelong Democrat. I fully expect to remain a Democrat. Um, but I'm very concerned with the big government uh March of our party, apparent unwillingness of the Democratic leadership to exercise any sort of fiscal restraint, and I'm alarmed over the defundables movement, which moved me from riding with Biden to. Uh, being willing to publicly support support uh, Donald Trump's re-election. Yeah, that's that's not an easy move to make either. Um, so, what was the final experience that you had that made you uh, switch to Trump? Oh, uh, when uh, Bernie Sanders uh, took on Hillary, I became very disillusion with a large segment of the Democratic Party and you know, felt that Hillary was running a recognizably feminist candidacy. First one in American history. And Bernie blew it up for, for no particular reason. I feel that it takes a lot of uh, pre 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 preparatory work and a lot of education to set up a, a, a goal for a feminist approach to American politics. And again, Bernie blew it up. I was very hopeful that it would come back in the 2020 campaign. And my original uh, candidate was Kamala Harris. And uh, again, a recognizable feminist, although not uh, an advanced or extreme feminist. And what drew me to her was her proposal to provide tax deductions for renters. And there's a lot of people who rent their living accommodations. It's an important segment of the real estate market. And I thought it was just amazing that uh, a presidential candidate was willing to uh, make a proposal to help renters. Uh, she lost me when she attacked Biden in the first Democratic debate, and particularly when she reopened what I thought was a closed debate on forced school busing. I find it detestable to think that we would use school children as pawns in our racial policy wars. And I, I just thought that Camilla Harris bringing that up in the, in the debate at that juncture, in that context, showed a distinct lack of judgment and character. And I haven't been able to swallow it since. And I don't like that she will be one heartbeat, one 78 year old heart beating away from the presidency. Um, but Biden concerns me more than Camilla because he seems very weak. Bernie Sanders was able to walk away from this and say, we might have lost the nomination, but we won the campaign. So in a lot of ways, Biden is Bernie-like. Mm -hmm. You figure 
you know, you have to unify the party. But what really brought me away from the Democrats was the defund the police movement. I mean, that really is defund the police. And many of the people advocating it, it even means disbanding the police. And Biden's original response in early June was, we just keep doing the same thing, more training, you know. And the uh, defund the police activists were very adamantly opposed, and Biden didn't seem to be very strong about it. So despite Biden's formal declarations of uh, resistance to defund the police, he has not come out in favor of the blue the police in the way that Trump and Pence have. So Trump and Pence are affirmatively and deliberately and explicitly defending the police. Biden is trying to finesse the issue. And I just think that given the current makeup of the Democratic Party, uh, Biden's going to be swept away. Plus he's 78, you know. Who knows yeah. if he's going to be in office until 2024. So well, with those happy... Minneapolis, right? No, not yet. They've started walking what? back the whole defund the police thing in Minneapolis already. They had to re reconvene. They're like, then they use the excuse that it's not in our city's charter. It's not in our city constitution. We can't actually do that or, or dissolve that. So, so, so are you arguing in Biden's already. favor here or are you arguing against me? And no, the, I'm the, saying the, that the defund the police thing is absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And Minneapolis, well, Minneapolis City Council's already started walking it back. Right. And the thing is, it's interesting that Biden really didn't condemn any of the rioting and looting until it started to affect his poll numbers. And then he started coming out strongly against it. Right. And my problem with Biden is that he has he doesn't really stand for anything like he flip flops his position in which which whatever is popular. That's what I've noticed about him for a while now. Like, he even flip-flopped at the debate when it came to the Green New Deal. He said, I'm against the Green New Deal. And then he said he was for a Green New Deal, his Green New Deal, to get rid of fossil fuels. So, and then there was another clip where he was being heckled by somebody in Pennsylvania, uh, a Trump supporter. And the Trump supporter said, you want to ban fossil fuels? And he's like, no, I don't. And then at the debate, he said he wanted to get, end fossil fuels. So, yeah. That's a, that's well, he might not. He might not understand the difference between ending fossil fuels and uh, getting rid of them. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a different debate. But we'll discuss economic policy in uh, the next episode. Right now, we're really trying to focus on a little more of um, the the whole racial thing, right? Of race inequality and income inequality within black America versus white America. And how do we, you know, how do we fix that? And is Biden the answer to that? Right. So we're, we're at a disadvantage here a little bit, Michael, you know, two white mm -hmm. guys That's with true. business affiliations talking about race issues. And, and a lot of people are going to turn us right off, you know, I mean, constantly encounter people saying, yes, for an older cis, what is it, what is it cis sexual, cisgender, cisgendered, cisgendered uh, heterosexual male. Of course you think this way. But I want to discuss the issues and try and find some substantive common ground with men and women of other races. You know, America is not a white only country. We That's are true. not arguing in favor of white supremacy or white privilege or anything like that. We're looking for racial justice and racial equity and mm -hmm. for black people, brown people, yellow people to have the same shot in American success that we get. Agreed. Definitely agreed. And one of the big things um, that I have found, right, do you know who Master P is? No. So Master P is very famous in hip-hop. And Master P, back, I think it was in either June or July, he came out and said that what black people need to do is start buying up whole blocks of city property and converting them for their own use. And I'm like, 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, somebody's finally getting this. We need more black home ownership. We need more black business people. And that's what I really want to see. Like, that's one of my desires to see that. Well, and even, honestly, even, food, even food production. I mean, you think mm -hmm. if you buy a few blocks of blighted city property with nobody living on it, demolish the buildings, and use the land to grow food, you could supply people's meats and vegetables you know, quite nicely mm -hmm. and help them survive, you know, help them through hard times, make life better with home-grown foods. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's definitely one option. Um, and one of the big things that I'd like to, one of the big things I'd like to see is, um, I think that, I'm going to say this, I think that Trump's opportunity zones starts off in the right spot. Will it work? I guess time will tell. But one of the things that has um, been, a, been a big problem to uh, black communities has been gentrification, where they tear down all of the old black properties and black businesses or low income businesses, which usually happen to be either black or Hispanic, and they tear down these whole districts and rebuild them, and then they end up pushing the people that were there for a long time out. And uh, do you remember the riots in, um, was it Detroit in the late 1960s? I actually remember them, yeah. Yeah. And so, and now I'm only 32, so I've only read about it. But um, one of the things that happened there was they, con they started considering this uh, black neighborhood slums, right? They started calling them slums. And there was one business owner in particular, I forgot what the guy's name was, but his parents or his grandparents had come up from the South, from the deep South, either like Alabama or Mississippi or something, because they were, you know, the Jim Crow laws and everything. So they moved to Detroit and started a business. So they get to Detroit and then a, a generation or two later, now they want to tear down this business and rebuild it and rebuild the whole block. And he's like, well, who are you to tell me that my business is a slum? And that's, and a lot of the rioting had to do with that kind of a mentality. Was you, you, the government's coming in here and telling me that my business is in a crappy neighborhood. You're calling my neighborhood crappy. So rather than investing in the neighborhood, they started tearing these neighborhoods down and replacing them. And that's still going on today. And it's not just like a one-party issue. Well, I think gentrification refers more to private owners uh, buying properties, forcing out one-time residents. And yeah. it's, a, it's a vexing problem. I mean, uh, a, a big part of the reason that buildings become blighted, that neighborhoods become blighted, is because they become run down and landlords become desperate to rent and they drop their rents and uh, poor people and, and in a lot of cases people of color, poor people of color move into them and you suddenly find that you have a lot of poor people living in an area which probably was never uh, particularly desirable, but which housed working people with, with better means than the people of color. I mean, uh, gentrification should include a component of neighborhood preservation, neighborhood renewal. Um, a city in Ithaca, New York, the home of Cornell University is becoming very run down. You ever live in student housing? Um, yes, but I mean, the student housing I lived in was actually pretty decent. Okay, off-campus student housing? Yes. What, how is that? Uh, it was fine. I live, I actually, I currently live in, I currently live in student housing, but the student housing down here is a lot nicer than the student housing up there because, and it's also a law school. So I live in a villa, two bedrooms. I have a lanai and a kitchen and a giant bedroom nice. and a study, nice. two bathrooms. 
I mean, yeah. So, but in any I case, I have a nice uh, student housing. <laughs> in in, but I, in northern I went to city. school in Binghamton, New York. Okay, right? Binghamton. And yes, so we. Binghamton, Ithaca, you know, both homes of great universities. Yes, uh, I, unfortunately, I didn't go to the great university that was there. I went to a really crappy have, one. You have already. That wasn't a university. Been, you have already run down uh, housing stock, mm -hmm. which students further degrade. I mean, student housing tends to be overcrowded. Mm -hmm. Students tend not to be the best at maintaining any semblance. And, and the student housing drives up the the cost of rent too, as we saw in Bingham, as we see in Binghamton. Uh, right. The rent is starting to get almost to Ithaca levels. Um, wow. It's going to be there in a few years. And oh, this, it's because of student good. housing, right? Because these these landlords come in and then they charge like three or four hundred dollars a person, right? right? Instead of instead of charging for the apartment, they're charging per person. And everybody's now just trying to build student housing, student housing, student housing, student housing, and it drives up the cost of rent. And actually, before I left Binghamton and moved down here, uh, I moved down and uh, I moved down recently. So um, my, my wife just started this semester and she so before we moved, there are two things. So one of the things was uh, something got defeated in city council um, on the west side of Binghamton, New York. There was um, there was a bill where they were going to where somebody was petitioning to turn this part of the west side into a commercial zone instead of into um, a private uh, housing zone, right? They were trying to they were trying to turn it into a commercial zone so they could build more student housing, and not a single person on the city council voted in favor of it. Hmm. Not a single person because they knew what the implications were. It would mean more student housing, and it would mean rent would increase. And so they said no. And then there was an, there's another project going on in Binghamton, New York called Noma, north of Main Street, right? And I was, at first, I was like, is this a gentrification project? Are they, like, trying to rename everything? And then it turns out it's actually an anti-gentrification project where they're getting tired of the city calling every single place um, a slum. Right, because there are people that live there, and they're tired. And then people are ty being tired are tired of being kicked out of their homes. Well, north of, of Maine in Binghamton, I think, is a good example. Um, it's mostly either owner occupied housing or one, two, possibly three units where. Uh, you have a, a building with a, a downstairs apartment, an upstairs apartment, or a building with a downstairs apartment, an upstairs apartment, and then maybe a little apartment for an in-law or a single person somewhere on the premises or somewhere Yeah, the that's how my apartment was that my wife and I lived in on Clinton Street in Binghamton. Um, we had uh, an insurance agency downstairs, and then in the back downstairs, we had an apartment for one person. And then upstairs, we had our two-bedroom apartment with an attic and a bathroom and a washer-dryer hookup. And then there was another apartment upstairs for a single person. And those sort of neighborhoods are very amenable to urban policy that favors small landlords and, and homeowners. You know, if the, if the building is occupied by the owner, He's in the downstairs apartment. He rents the upstairs apartment. It's owner-occupied, but it's also a small rental building. Uh, urban policy that helped him maintain the house, you know, keep it painted, fix up the porch, make sure the windows are, are uh, well-maintained, uh, keep the grounds in order would not cost a lot of money and would do a lot towards making neighborhoods more presentable. Now, unfortunately, neither party views urban policy as a small owner, small house, small unit kind of thing, neither Trump nor uh, Biden. 
view it in this way. The single advantage that Trump has over Biden in this is that Trump does understand real estate values. He does understand to some degree how to create amenable, nice, uh, good neighborhoods that people can live in. And his, his father did that kind of work. Trump doesn't have a lot of uh, presidential uh, development other than in, in big buildings like uh, him and Kushner building a multi, multi, multi story high rises with, with a lot of units. But he at least is open to people who want to uh, fix places up and make a little money in the real estate market. I don't see the same sort of mentality either in the New York state government, which is dominated by liberals, in the New York city government, which is dominated by liberals, nor in anything in Biden's past. Harris, like I said, started off with what I consider a great proposal of rent deduction, of deductions, income tax deductions for renters. That's pretty much done, and she doesn't seem to be pushing any sort of urban policy that favors the poor. I mean, she's not even out of the... You want to talk... People talked about Joe Biden being in the basement. I, I haven't heard from Kamala Harris, like, at all. Like, I've heard from Biden way more than I've heard from Kamala, so if you were going to accuse anybody of hiding in the basement, you know, it's got to be her. Like, why is well, she hiding in the basement? She's they a pit bull. You don't just hide the pit bull inside. They, they should be, uh, in my opinion, because of the pandemic, they should be highly limited in their, in their public appearances. I mean, uh, Trump got COVID from going to public appearances in North Carolina. Well, he uh, nobody really knows exactly where it came from, but like everybody that was at Amy Coney Barrett's revealing or unveiling pretty much got it there. Well, I mean, we've got no, we senators, we've got we a lot we of don't, people. We don't, we don't, a, a number of them who were there had it. Mm -hmm. But all of them had very extensive travel schedules. We don't know who the index patients are. There's no, there's no index patient who's been identified for the uh, Rose Garden Ceremony. Here's a Rose Garden Ceremony. These people are screened up to the wazoo. They can't figure out who the index patient is. I mean, to me, that indicates that they all contracted it at separate places and happened to be in one place together at one time. Yeah, Not that they caught it there. Yeah, it's, but still, I mean, Harris could at the very least make, do a, do a live chat or a live stream you know, well, she, doesn't, she, can just she might not be doing it. That we don't see it doesn't mean that uh, she's not doing it. Uh, I get. A, I, I also get a lot of, of criticism because I, I, I criticize her to a fair degree. And I get criticism from other people that I'm scared of her because uh, she's a woman of color, uh, that she's a Afro-Caribbean. Is her mother Indian or was her mother Surinamese? Yeah, something like that. I, I, don't, I don't remember. All I know is she's part, part, um, what is it, that Indian and part um, Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean or whatever. But I, I find those sorts of criticisms to be rather condescending and, and off point. I mean, Harris is a law school graduate. She was uh, the DA of one of the largest urban counties in the United States. She was the Attorney General of California. Now she's a United States Senator. I mean, we have to be able to talk about her and criticize her in the same manner we would criticize uh, the late John McCain, uh, Senator Kerry, uh, 
Vice President Mike Pence, Senator McConnell, Governor Cuomo. with Kamala Harris. Yes. She's got like one career achievement, and that's yelling at Brett Kavanaugh. Like, what career achievements does she actually have? Well, Obama had a whole bunch of achievements by the time he was president. You know, he it, at least had some civil it, rights. That's, that's that an unfair characterization, of. Mike, of, of Kamala Harris. I mean, uh, I criticize her for that because, to me, it indicates an abrasiveness that is unbecoming in a U.S. senator and is, you know, Trump-level abrasiveness. Uh, you know, just we're going to shut people down. Uh, but she was, she was, uh, she brought up the efficiency of the uh, San Francisco district attorney. I mean, she ran back when she was still smart on crime, before she started flip-flopping on that. Uh, she ran against her, her boss, the then current district attorney, and she brought the, the conviction rate up, I believe, 20 points from a 62% conviction rate to an 82% conviction rate. So she did not exceed the California state district attorney's median rate. And she wasn't anywhere near the uh, New York rate, which is around 97, between 94 and 97% successful conviction rate. But she did improve that office. And she was very active as attorney general. And she says, you know, she runs through this litany of, of big companies, which she sued, which I, I, I tend to hold against her because I don't like putting cases together and making law one suit at a time. I mean, I think that's a legislative job. But, uh, I, I, I think Kamala Harris is reasonably good credentials, as reasonably good credentials as any other senator to be vice president. Uh, see, I disagree. I think that the I think that she doesn't have enough well, that's the problem, right? So even if you think she might be have enough credentials to be vice president, does she have enough credentials to potentially be president? Yes. And that's 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 the nub of it. You know, I mean this is not a normal nomination. We pick two candidates, you know, the principal, the one running mm -hmm. for president, and the V-POTUS, who's like, you know, just a supporting character. I mean, in this instance, I mean, there is a high probability that, uh, you know, I'm not wishing anything bad on the Bidens or Joe Biden, but he's, he's yeah. 78 years old. You know, he, it's, you know, you have to think very hard about whether or not his running mate is capable of stepping right in and taking over. And I agree with you. I mean, Camilla Harris needs more seasoning or more experience or something. And I think we'll find out. You know, I'm actually interested to see Wednesday night's debate because I want to see if Mike Pence can actually win against Kamala Harris because I, I, I actually doubt it because, like I said, Kamala Harris is a pit bull. She is. And I think that if Biden, I think Biden should let her out of the cage a little bit. She like uncage the pit bull. I mean, it's well, not it's not gonna hurt. I don't see Kamala Harris as hurting yeah, the campaign. I think she would help it. After last Tuesday, you think a pit bull is what people want? Well, the only way you're gonna beat a pit bull is with a pit bull. No, I don't agree. In this in this case. I don't agree. I think you know, I think the vice president can basically ignore her say if that's what you believe you're entitled to your beliefs it's not how we do things here or it's not how i did things back in indiana or it's not how we're going to do things in the trump administration you know we are not going to overregulate. you know you want to sue everybody and his mother i disagree with that i think that we need to let the market be free uh you think uh, people of color don't have opportunities uh, on par with whites? I agree wholeheartedly. And I think here's how we uh, take action to assure equal opportunity for all Americans. You know, Make sure that, that black people can go to schools. 
that will educate their children mm -hmm. to their full potential. You know, let them go to charter schools. Let them go to parochial schools. Give them school vouchers. Let the parents work with the school administrations to pick the best school for their kids. There's actually a problem with some charter schools down here in Florida, right? Florida has problems with its K through 12 education. Its college, its colleges and universities are really, really good, but K through 12 is just a disaster, right? And the charter schools in New York City are actually generally outperforming public schools in New York City right now. But I think charter schools down here are probably kind of eh, but there's a lot more private schools down here, right? And I think that we do need to make these schools available for um, for black people. And no. it was interesting that Biden was against busing. Now, he, he thought it was more of like uh, kind of a waste of money and didn't really want to mix cultures, right? And, and that's understandable you know, from his point of view. But um, one of my, I, a guilty confession, I like Ben Shapiro, right? But I completely disagree with Ben Shapiro on busing, right? He thinks it's a waste of taxpayer money. I think that we need to continue busing and we should allow busing if people want to choose to go to a different school like a charter school. We need to allow for busing and public transportation using school buses to get kids to those schools. That's because I think well, we need to integrate charters in charters and private schools. When I brought up the issue, uh, when I was discussing Kamala Harris earlier, mm -hmm. you might have missed that I said forced busing. Okay, and I think Ben Shapiro, like me, makes the distinction between busing that uh, gets a kid to a school that his parents chose for him mm -hmm. and forced busing where he's he or she is being moved to a school because that school needs more white children or more black children. You know, well, I, one I is would, one is to know. make I'd sure the to kid goes to the best school possible for that kid. The other is just you're white. We need more white kids over here on the side of town. You're yeah, black. And, and you don't we want put to create white school. Just because white huh? yeah, What's that? Exactly. You don't just put a kid in school just because they're a different race, right? You, I really would like to see school choice, and I think that. One of the things that um, Trump has been pushing for a while now, and he really wants to push it in a potential second term, is school choice, right? And I am a school choice fan, um, and I don't know how you can make the case against school choice. I've been trying to figure out how to make a case against it, but it just seems like everybody's making the case for me. Um, like AOC came out and said something, I forget exactly what she said, but she basically made the argument that school choicers make and then said that we need to eliminate charter schools and private schools. And I'm like, what? Like, the conclusion didn't follow. Well, I, I, I can talk from experience. It's an old experience. It goes back to the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to say two things. One about charter schools and one about magnet schools. And I'll bring in school choice to it. So uh, back in the 90s, the Albany City School System, which is where we lived at the time, mm -hmm. basically where I raised two of my kids. Uh, they both graduated from uh, Albany City School, City Albany High School, part of the Albany City School District. Um, the Albany City School District had very low esteem among uh, people of color. They thought that the public schools which served their neighborhoods were poorly staffed, overcrowded, and that the architecture in the schools were was just, you know, the buildings were poorly maintained and they were they were poor arch architectural designs. I mean one of them was built in the seventies when they had this idea of, of open classrooms and there were no interior walls in the school. 
So if you were sitting in one room, you had dividers around the classroom I space. That in so many schools like that. Huh? I know exactly what you're talking about. So it was, you know, it's like you, you really had to work to hear what was going on in your room as opposed to what was going on going on in rooms all around you. Yeah. So when, when the proposal came up, and it was it was a referendum, when the proposal came up for charter schools, it got 85% approval in African-American neighborhoods. And at that time, there was not a large Hispanic uh, population in Albany. So they, they were all in favor of it. Now, simultaneously, the same year they had that referendum, uh, one of my close friends ran for president as a school board mate. Her husband and I basically did the campaign for her and got her elected president of the Albany uh, school board. So I learned a lot about the budgeting process. And back then, and could be the same now, but back then it certainly was, the charter school budgets were very opaque. Uh, school board didn't know how many kids were in school on any given day. They didn't know where the teachers were there. They just got these bills, you know, supposedly we have 106 kids enrolled in fourth grade. We're paying four fourth grade teachers send us X amount of dollars. You know, so the, the school district was on the hook for the tab, but it didn't have any accountability or any good audit auditing process in place to assure that educational services are being delivered. Right? And that's that's my that's still my big beef in, up here uh, with charter schools. Now our alternative was to start magnet schools. I was uh, on the, the parent board to start a magnet school. We started a school devoted to science and technology to attract white children into a school that was predominantly African-American uh, enrollment. And we spent a lot of time because uh, there was me, there was another white guy, there were two white mothers, and then there were four or five black parents. So they were all insistent that we retain the African-American flavor that was that was the way they, they put it, or the African American character of the school. So we're going to have this contingent of, of white kids. We're going to have this super enriched science and math curriculum, but we're going to keep it like a black school. And uh, Phil, if if, if uh, there's other people I know who went to the school, if they were here, they could attest to it that we were successful at that. So a big part of education is providing high quality academic content, but at the same time retaining the uh, African-American or Hispanic or whatever uh, culture within the school so the kids feel safe and they feel like they belong there. So they're challenged academically, but at the same time they feel that they're not threatened. You know, they don't have to act white to be smart. interesting yeah that's yeah and that's actually one of the accusations that's happening right now and i think there's um a lot of resentment um in the black community about the way they've been treated and legitimately so right um i read a book by uh, an author named amity schley she's very conservative but she you know did a lot of research uh on the war on poverty and um the great society under lyndon b johnson right and one of the things she talked about was when they started trying to give all this money to black communities, she said, uh, I forget who said it, she quoted one of the government officials that was overseeing the program, and he said there basically wasn't a black person involved at all in making any of these policy, public policy decisions affecting the black community, right? And I think that's happened a lot over the years, and I think, I'm, I think what we're starting to see is the black community getting involved forcibly because they haven't been let i don't think they've been let in enough on making these important policy decisions and i think well, and i think it's there's kind of a reckoning happening 
And 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 that would be if 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 I were an advocate for black community or if I were black, I might make that argument. That, you know, when we look at the Trump administration, we see a bunch of older white guys in suits. Yes. We don't see African Americans. I mean, we know there's qualified African Americans. I mean, there's tons of African American school principals, school superintendents. Uh, deans of, of colleges of education all across the United States. So there's plenty of qualified people to serve in those uh, positions, but we don't see them when we look at Washington. So the important thing to say that Vice President Pence would have to say to Senator Harris when she makes the point that I just made is we believe in local control of schools. We want to bring it down to the community level where the parents and the school administrators and the teachers can work together to decide what's best for the children and the families in the community. And in, in, in that case, I think there is a very strong case for Trump that the, the Republican Party, which I don't necessarily hear so much, but the Trump administration certainly is, is, is putting the federal legislation and federal programs in place and block grants and other uh, other sorts of things from the Department of Education to move control of schools more and more towards uh, community control. And not even just schools, but um, local development, right? Development right. of black communities, right? And he's talking $500 billion to these black communities all over the United States because it's really important. And I think, I think it's really kind of a good idea. You know, I never would have thought of it. Well, it's, it's, it's a good idea. I mean, urban policy has to include uh, people of color because a lot of them, I mean, our cities in most cases are half, 40%, some cases majority black entity. They have to be involved. I mean, uh, there's no way you can make urban policy without engaging uh, people of color from the community level right up to the, the level of governors and level of cabinet secretaries, even, even you know, hopefully at some point at the presidential level. Again, you know, yeah, one thing I'd like to see, and this is a this is a big thing for me. I would like to see a grant program specifically uh, to help pay for closing costs, down payments of uh, mortgages for black families, as well as um, startup money, startup grants for black-owned businesses, right? Because I think the only way in which people want to talk about big corporations and everything, well, the way to combat big corporations is more competition, right? And the way to bring... Um, income levels in the black community up is for them to have their own business and to create their own wealth. And that's really one of the things I want to see is black people being able to create their own wealth so that way we can start closing this income disparity that we have between... So, um, so we're white. talking then about using federal funds as seed money for uh, starting black businesses that would then grow and create capital to continue the growth of more black businesses, expanding those black businesses, mm -hmm. employing black people, and giving them more economic power in the system. Yeah, I had a lot of conservatives complain when Google started putting black businesses first on their search engine because they're like, that's discrimination. I'm like, I'm for it because, I, and, and I think it's their right, but I also, I think it's a great idea because it will expand wealth for black-owned businesses. And if we really want to fix the problem, we need for black people to have more wealth. And we need for them to be able to build it. And we need to provide them with the opportunity to do so. Well, you know, Michael, that's smart on so many levels. I mean, it, it, it is a good aspect of a reparations policy, which, you know, we, we owe black people something for all the uncompensated work that they did to build our country. So, you know, I, I, I do favor black reparations. And that's that's a good way to, uh, that's a good mechanism for, for, for giving those reparations. 
Second, uh, black black household income is considerably lower mm-hmm. than white household income in the United States, and it's considerably lower. lower than the average, the USA average. Mm-hmm. So this is a way of bringing that income back up by their uh, by their work and by the resources of their community, and that of course helps all the rest of us because. Black people have more money to spend. It grows the economy, and you know they're yeah, they're they get more customers. And uh, it fits in with Trump's plan because we talk a lot about American economic nationalism, and who's more American than African Americans? You know, that is so true. if if their economy is growing and if they're contributing more to the to the general American prosperity. I mean, that's a great American nationalist um, nationalist economic policy that helps all Americans. You know, it makes our country that much more inclusive. Yeah, it's it's really helpful. Now, when it comes to nationalism, right, economic nationalism, I think that people think that Trump is going the way of um, almost like whenever we talk about nationalism people always think about the nazis and everything but that's not the kind of nationalism that trump is talking about he's trying to bring manufacturing back now trump loves money okay the dude yeah, loves money he does, so, he does. and he, and he favors you know, the rich i mean let's get that right up front but he also realizes that he's going to make less money if the economy is not booming right so he's a retail genius i mean yeah one of the reasons that he wanted to run for president was to increase his personal wealth by increasing the personal wealth of the United States. And I think, and I'm going to say it, the reason that Trump got elected in 2016, it's a referendum on both parties. It was a referendum on the Republicans because people are sick of the warmongers, right? We're sick of being held captive to gigantic debts from war. And, and people are also sick of Democrats thinking they can just redistribute all the wealth and that'll solve everything and welfare will just solve all the problems and big government will just solve everything, right? It it was a referendum on both sides. So until both sides get serious and offer up a viable candidate, we're, we're unfortunately left with a jerk. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Trump is a jerk. I mean, nobody can deny that, but... Uh, he's a jerk who is willing to take on the bastards who are running the country. Yeah, you know, Trump, yeah, exactly. Trump is an outsider. He's a Queens guy, you know, so he's tough and crude and brags a lot. Yeah, uh, but, you know, he, he's willing He's willing to take on the generals. He's willing to take on the banks. He's willing to take on uh, academic Brahmins, you know, I mean. He's just, you know, he's just a scrapper, and yeah, it's ugly, and, and it's yeah. ugly as sin. But it's, uh, it's something that's needed in our country right now. Yeah, and I, and you know, there were some people. You know, who I really liked in the primary, the Democrat primary. I liked Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang because I felt yeah, like you those two. I, I, I feel like those two actually had solutions. Like Andrew Yang had solutions. He seems like an extremely intelligent guy, and he did very well on Joe Rogan's podcast. And Joe I Rogan doesn't take it easy on conservatives or liberals. I ended he, up voting, voting for Andrew Yang. I mean, I voted in New York, so the thing was all sealed up. So, but you know, I started thinking about my vote is just a, a vote as a preference. You know, uh, Bernie had already dropped out by then, and I voted for Yang as a vote for for uh, universal basic income. And again, this is something which, if we're talking about racial equality, is vitally important. I mean, if all of us have a universal basic income and we know that between ourselves, our spouses, a couple of kids, and maybe, you know, a mother or mother-in-law living with us, or, you know, us and two or three roommates, that we've got, you know, flowing into the household every month, we can start to think about our work as something that builds up the community. And, you know, Andrew Yang kept saying that, that there's a lot of unpaid work, low-paid work that's very important. 
And we could do a lot of that with a UBI plan. Now, I am not a fan of Bill Clinton in any, any way, shape, or form. But Bill Clinton gave a speech a few years ago. Um, I don't remember exactly what year, but there was a lawyer from the church that I used to go to where he actually listened to a speech that he gave on AI and how automation is... In Artificial intelligence. Yes, is in the AI, next 10, 20 years is going to kill a lot of jobs. And he said that's the elephant in the room that neither side is talking about. And which jobs are going to go first? The low-paying jobs. And who and the people who holds the low-paying jobs in this country? Generally well, this, minorities. This is the thing about bringing back manufacturing. We need to manufacture in the United States. But it's going to be by AI and by automation because wage, wage costs lie. You know, if you're going to hire 500 guys or pay for 50 robots, you know, let's let's buy the 50 robots because, yeah. you know, uh, so even as we bring back manufacturing, we're not going to recapture a lot of these jobs. So, and I just told my wife that I don't like saying this in public, but I think we need a value-added tax. I think we need the taxation in the production stages and uh, the taxes levied on corporations and banks, not on personal income. Um, and I think we need a, a universal basic income. I, mean, I think that it, that if, if, if you have the cash, it solves so many problems. If we didn't tax the first $40,000 or so of personal income, a lot of people would make decisions and do, do a lot of things for themselves. We have to turn to banks or companies, corporations, or the government for now. Well, when the Republicans redid the tax code a few years ago, it was actually very interesting. I started bringing more money home in my paycheck after that uh, because they redid the tax brackets so that once you're, when you're below 40000 you pay virtually nothing in income taxes. But as soon really? as you get over that $40,000 hump, your taxes increase, you know, quite a bit more, right? But it was actually very helpful because I got married soon after that law was passed. Like, I think mm -hmm. less than a year from when that law was passed. And um, my wife uh, lost a job at the DA's office, unfortunately. Um you know, inner working politics and things like that. They didn't want to play the political games, but they decided they wanted to play the political games, and so that's how it went. But then she got a job working for a school. But our taxes were actually relatively low, and we, we made pretty decent money. Um, I think we brought in somewhere around between fifty five and 60000 um, our first year of marriage. So it was, yeah, it was something, you know. we. So, so you're saying... That essentially the first $40,000 of personal income are exempt under the current plan? No, not exempt, but the tax rate's a lot lower. Um, okay. I think it's between, I forget what the what the rate is. I don't have it in front of me, but... But it is, but it is considerably lower. Yes, it is considerably lower one. Um, I forget, I think it was, it's either just over 40000 or just under. I don't remember. But I was glad that I made less money that year. So, so, you know, this is a little bit rhetorical, but how do we look at uh, a tax plan that, from from what you say, is so favorable to, to the lower income workers and the lower incomes uh, brackets of the, of, of the economy? Uh, how how is it that we you know we say that it's such a uh, so favorable for the rich and, and miss its uh, favorable aspects for the, the lower lower income people? Well, okay. So one of my one of the big problems that I see um, with and and this is the reason that I have trouble voting for somebody like Bernie, who always all, their whole goal is just. They think that they're going to get these, like, endless funds just by taxing the rich, <clears throat> right? 
just tax mm-hmm. the rich, tax the rich, tax mm-hmm. the rich. But the problem is when you just keep taxing the rich and taxing the rich, the rich have this weird luxury of having the resources to either move their businesses out of the country or to a different state. Or, or move their assets out of the country. Yeah. And stay yeah, exactly. here and enjoy the country and have their assets in in the Cayman Islands or somewhere. Are you familiar with Eduardo Severin, co-founder no. of Facebook? Okay, so he was the co-founder of Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg. And Eduardo Severin had somewhere close to, I think it was $700 million or something. And um, he ended up renouncing his U.S. citizenship and taking all his money to Singapore. Uh, This was under Obama. Do they have a a tax code that favors him? Um, They probably, they they must. Because if they didn't, he'd probably... Why would he go there, man? Exactly. Why would he go there? Because he probably got a good tax break. He claims it was because he was vested in more businesses in Singapore than in the U.S. But the question is, why was he more vested in Singapore than here? Why is he more invested in Singapore? Why isn't he starting the businesses here? It's like, well, that's an up-and-coming market. Well, sure, but there's plenty of room in our market for improvement. So the and reason how big is, is because there's more four and a half, five million people, something like that. Yeah. It's like, so, what, like Connecticut, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So, so like, but that's just the thing, right? We need to incentivize people to start businesses and have more competition. And another thing that I keep hearing from um, Democrat talking heads, liberal talking heads, is how rich, how much richer the rich have become during this um, pandemic. Because we've locked everything down, so essentially we locked down all of the competition. So now there's less competition. So hopefully, when we can get this economy up and running again, and hopefully both sides decide to come to the table sometime in the near future to pass another stimulus, you know, we need competition. We need businesses to open their doors again. Otherwise, we're going to see wealth inequality like we've never seen it before. Well, the wealth inequality was something that goes far back, much farther than Trump. And I won't won't say that Trump has done much to ease it. Uh, And the tax code might have favored wealth concentration. but it's that's not going away. Uh, growing the economy, making sure that everybody's working, making sure that everybody can take vacations, they have good health care, that they have disposable income. I mean, that to me seems, in the short term, more uh, things to 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 go for. I mean, the tax code. When are, when are we going to redo that? You know, it'll be another 30 years before we yeah, redo it. The government's always five to ten years behind the market when it comes to regulations, I've found. They're, they're generally behind the eight ball. They're behind the curve. But um, Well, people taxes, think of ways to get around the regulations, you know. I mean, they, they pass them. People think of ways to get around them. And, you know, then the regulations are useless because nobody does it that way anymore. I don't even like the idea of having tax credits or tax deductions. No, I agree. Except for only I agree. Get rid of all the tax deductions. People, people abuse them. Even middle class people abuse them, right? If you can abuse them, you're going to abuse them legally, right? You're going to. <clears throat> so we need to. I I like the idea of a flat tax, maybe a progressive tax, or a flat tax, or even a sales tax of some sort. You know, like something or other, because oh, the system now is not working. We're we're starting to run out of time, and this is this is a good subject for us to pick up when we meet again. Yeah, I agree. I think, and the next episode is going to be about economics, so right. it's going to be quite the thing. And I'm going to have a lot more statistics next time. So, well, hopefully, people listening to this will enjoy it as much as I have. Yes, it has been quite enjoyable. It's nice to catch up with you again. Say hi to Allison for me. All right, I will. And Say uh, hi to Barb. yeah, don't don't uh, 
don't make her spend too much time on this because she's she's got to be a busy person now with all her life lost oh i guarantee you she's not going to listen to it she doesn't even like listening to the podcasts i listen to generally all right all right on that happy note michael we'll catch you we'll catch you soon all right have a good one robert be well my friend